Welcome. I'm Rachel Amonday. Thank you for being here listening to the Spiritual Exercises podcast. Um, We are in our proofs series. As I have explained in the last podcast, proof really is that you are 100% assured, proved proven without a doubt, right? There is no more questioning at hand. That's not exactly what we're doing here. What we're doing is giving you the evidences that we have in archaeology and history that show you the likelihood of the biblical stories being accurate and true. The first two in my proof series that I've done so far, the discoveries I discussed were absolutely really, really, really good evidence, like solid as a rock. Um, And going to be really hard at this point, you know, for them to come up with other stories around these particular evidences. But um, the two that I want to talk about today are a little more on the evidence side that you'll have to stack up among other evidences, but they're pretty good. Um, They're just a little bit different than the first two. And I will attempt to explain that as we go through this. Um, I just want to remind you all today as we go out into the world and we share all the new information that we're receiving, all the new information the Lord is giving us, including all these newer archaeological finds that I keep getting to discuss here. I just want to remind you that, um, you know, God wants us to be merciful and kind and gracious with those that we encounter and that we talk to because he is merciful and kind and gracious with us. And so tell the truth, but tell it in love. Share with those who are going to receive it. Um, Be careful not to get yourself in unhealthy debates with other believers that aren't going to go anywhere. We know that the Bible warns against this. Um, I'm consistently reminded that Yeshua prayed that his people would be one, that they would be unified. And I I do believe that we encounter churches and groups of people who say they're Christians, but hey, they don't worship the same God that I worship. And so we aren't really in the same church. I believe that that happens. And it's it's happened to me enough that I understand that perspective. But, you know, when you're among your brothers and sisters in Christ, be careful to be pursuing unity because it's what Christ prayed for us. And that with all the division and divisiveness that we already have going on in the world, don't you think Satan was so good, right, at weaving in a couple of lies to assure that the ministry of Christ would be completely watered down. And by a couple thousand years later, we have a God, we preach a God oftentimes that I actually don't find in the Bible now when I go read it. We preach um, a God that sometimes we preach a God that more resembles Zeus. He is awful and mean and harsh and judgmental, and he's up there waiting to crush you, and he creates some people for destruction, and we just have to deal with his awfulness. Okay, that God gets preached. And then there's another God that gets preached that there's a God up there. He doesn't care. Everything is about love, and love isn't defined anymore because the laws were nailed to the cross, and is this God just love, if it's about love, then he loves it. And okay, neither of those two gods are the God of the Bible. And so when you encounter these philosophies and, and these teachings, you have to be a little careful, a little wary. That's not 
who God is. So, um, but as you're having these discussions and debates, better to find first a place where you agree and then, you know, gauge whether the person is actually open for a real discussion or if they just want to fight you because <laughs> that happens too, or if it's just going to end up causing division, it might not be worth it. It might be. I don't think Yeshua wants us to be afraid of division. He said he came to divide. He came to separate, you know, parent from child and separate, you know, husband from wife. His message is divisive. But in the very end, among the brothers, brethren, right, among those who are family, we should try to find unity. So as we go out and and share all of this amazing wisdom that God is pouring out on his people right now, just make sure that you're doing it from the heart of love because everything God did was about how much he loved us. And that love is rooted in right relationship and righteous action. And so we have to walk that same walk. I am preaching to myself more than anybody this week. Oh boy. Do I need that message? Okay, let's dig into what I wanted to present to you all today. Now, I did try to make sure that I had a lot of sourcing on these two finds just to make sure that the finds, the archaeological evidence themselves does actually exist, and they do. So today we're going to cover two different items. We're going to be looking at Joseph's kingdom. Is there evidence that Joseph from the Bible, is there evidence that he existed and that things happened in Egypt that the Bible story describes? And we're also going to be looking at the time period of Manasseh, who we find his story in 2 Kings. He was a very wicked king of Judah. And so is there evidence of his kingdom and of what happened in that time period? So let's dig in. Let's start with the evidence of Joseph in Egypt. Is there evidence of this event? Because these events that happened during this time period were pretty big. So let's first start with a quick review of the story of Joseph. If you want the Bible's version and not my quick review, you can find it in Genesis 37 through 50. So this is basically the story. You probably all know it, but a young boy who is one of 12 brothers, uh, the sons of Jacob. His brothers are very jealous of him because he's Jacob's favorite. And so they sell him into slavery. He, through trial and tribulation, finds himself in Egypt and he becomes known for his ability to interpret dreams. The king of Egypt has a dream where he um, basically sees seven skinny cows eating up seven fat cows and seven sheaves of grain eating up these other um, sheaves of grain. And at the time, Joseph is in jail. He has been falsely accused of doing uh, evil in the house of the man that he was serving. And so he's in jail. But some of the folks that were in jail with him, he interpreted their dreams. And one of them was working for Pharaoh and remembered that Joseph could interpret dreams. Pharaoh was very upset because he couldn't find an interpretation for his dreams. Joseph is brought to him. Joseph interprets the dreams rightly. There's going to be seven years of just abundance in Egypt. And they are supposed to store away food because there are going to be seven years of unbelievable great famine. And the wisdom of Joseph finds him in second in command to Pharaoh and overseeing pretty much everything in Egypt. And eventually his brothers come to Egypt to find grain and there is a reuniting of the kingdom. We also kind of get into what happens after that, which is slowly over time, the kings of Egypt forget about Joseph and what he did for them. And eventually the Israelite people 
become enslaved in Egypt. And then God rescues them and um, pulls them out of Egypt. And the Egyptians chase after them uh, until the Reed Sea. And at that point, the children of Israel cross over onto dry land and the sea closes in over Pharaoh's army. Okay, that's what the Bible describes. So is there evidence of this story that we have found? So there is, okay, if you look at the history of what is called the Hyksos people, this, the Hyksos people likely could have uh, existed and these things could have occurred in the 12th dynasty when there were many Asiatic peoples who were coming into Egypt. The Bible tells us that the people that came out of Egypt were a mixed multitude, meaning of many nations. So not all of the Hyksos, as the Egyptians, or as some historians had called them, not all of them were Israelites or Jews, but they were all sorts of people that went out into the desert to meet the God of the Bible. So I'm quoting from the site Bible and Science here, and I quote, The Greek name Hyksos was coined by Manetho to identify his 15th dynasty of Asiatic rulers of northern Egypt. The word comes from the Egyptian, uh, and it says HK3WH3SWT. I can't read that. I don't know if you can, but maybe somebody can tell me how to say that, which means, but these things mean rulers of foreign countries, which Manetho mistranslated as shepherd kings. I don't know if that's really a mistranslation. What do you think? Because the Israelites were well known as shepherds. Oddly enough. And in fact, when they came in, they requested land from Pharaoh. Joseph requested land for all of their sheep, all of their herds of sheep. So calling them shepherd kings kind of makes sense if you understand the Bible story, but okay. Uh, Back to the quote, the Hyksos were of West Semitic background, probably from Southern Palestine, who migrated down into Northern Egypt during the 12th and 13th dynasties. At first, they lived peacefully with the Egyptians until the deterioration of Egypt's power, when in 1648 BC, they captured the Egyptian capital at Memphis. The Hyksos made Avaris their capital, which is modern Tel Ed-Daba, which was later known as Paramesse. Avarice, when Pyramus is possibly mentioned in Exodus 1, verse 11, by the way. Avarice is the Greek term for the Egyptian HWT-WRT, meaning mansion of the desert plateau. Other important Hyksos cities were Tel el-Yahudia, meaning mound of the Jews. That makes sense. Known for its distinctive black and white wear, and Tel el-Makshuta, probably Sukkot. Austrian Manfred Baytak excavating Tel Adaba, the ancient capital of the Hyksos, between 1984 to 1987, discovered a palace and garden dating back to the 12th dynasty with a tomb containing a statue of an Asiatic with a mushroom hairstyle that some scholars think might be Joseph. Much more evidence is needed to claim for certain that this is Joseph's tomb, but very interesting stuff here in the history, okay? Now, there's a 1975 study by Barbara Bell that reveals that during the 12th dynasty, the Nile River rose and fell very sharply and could have very easily caused a great famine. 
There's also this thing called the tradition of the seven lean, lean years in Egypt. It was written during the Ptolemaic period about the reign of Joser, and it states this, to let thee know I was in distress on the great throne, and those who are in the palace were in heart's affliction from a very great evil, since the Nile had not come in my time for a space of seven years. Grain was scant, fruits were dried up, and everything which they eat was short. Every man robbed his companion." The story of two brothers is an Egyptian text that dates to about 1225 BC that is very similar to the story of Joseph. This tale tells how a young man was falsely accused of a proposal of adultery by the wife of his older brother and after he had rejected her advances. In the 12th dynasty Egyptian tomb of Kanum Hotep, at Beni Hassan is pictured a caravan of 37 Asiatics, which would have been the Hyksos, arriving in Egypt trading black eye paint from the land of Shutu. The leader is named Ibsha and bears the title ruler of foreign lands, from which the name Hyksos is derived. The land of Shutu is probably an ancient term for Gilead, which we are, you know, Gilead is the term we're more aware of. The Ishmaelites who took Joseph down to Egypt came from Gilead through Dothan. That's found in Genesis 37:25. In the book of Sothis, which Sincellus believed was the genuine Manetho, it gives the specific time when Joseph rose to power under Hyksos king, Athophis, who ruled 61 years. It says, Some say that this king was at first called Pharaoh, and that in the fourth year of his kingship, Joseph came as a slave into Egypt. He appointed Joseph lord of Egypt and all his kingdom in the seventeenth year of his rule, having learned from him the interpretation of dreams and having thus proved his divine wisdom. Halpern has concluded overall the Joseph story is a reinterpretation of the Hyksos period from an Israelite perspective. Okay. That's all really fascinating, right? You have these links. They're not 100%. We can't call them total proof, but we can definitely say there's evidence that things were happening in this time frame that really match the story of Joseph in the Bible. And let's go back to this seven-year tradition of the lean years. It comes from Estella from Cairo, Egypt. This is the story um, of the seven-year famine. Now, in that story, the characters are a little bit different from the biblical tale, and they include talking about Imhotep, King Joser, and Egyptian gods. So, which is not surprising. Um, number one, we have to remember that the way that ancient cultures wrote about their own peoples, their own kings, everything was about their king, their king's glory, on and on and on. By the time that this Stella was written, it, the Hyksos people probably weren't favorable um, in the eyes of whoever the writer was. And so we have a tale that's very similar to the tale of Joseph, but the characters are a little bit different. I also think, guys, in these ancient time periods, there are... There's so much. It just makes sense to me that stories would have been intermixed. So if you heard the story of Joseph over time, right, the story would change sometimes as things were passed down in these different people groups, especially given the types of cultures they were. Now, in Judaism, Jews, they were so careful to pass things down very specifically and very much the same. They were all about complete memorization they still are to this day. I mean, in yeshiva school, I can't believe how much 
um, Bible gets memorized by these students and they want word for word memorization. They don't want you changing the story or changing the words. And possibly this is learned over time because other people groups in other places did change the stories, did change the words, did change the meaning. We do have changed history because of that. I mean, it sounds like journalism in modern day America, doesn't it? <laughs> we, we go back and we make make history fit what our leaders wanted to say. Um, but the, the truth is that it probably was likely this has always been happening. And so some of the stories we have written down that we found in these ancient locations aren't the exact stories, but there's enough in them to tell you what the Bible is telling you happened. You know, this, there was this stuff going on at the time. And I think that was that some of this stuff is incredibly interesting. Um, Archaeological evidence tells us that the Egyptians describe Asiatic peoples who come into Egypt, gain prominence and power, and then are eventually chased out by the Egyptians. Okay, now. So that's the Egyptian archaeological evidence. That's the historian's evidence of what they thought happened. That sounds just like the Bible story, does it not? You've got the Hyksos people, you've got Hebrews that come in, they find prominence, they gain power, they have some favor for a time because of what Joseph did there. But then over time, you know, public opinion turns and eventually as they're leaving Egypt, Pharaoh literally does chase after them. Chasing them out of Egypt is kind of a phrase that, the Egyptians could take on. And you see that view in the Bible. Don't you think that's what they thought was maybe happening? I mean, think about this. The Hebrew God had just killed all their firstborns. Do you think they wanted these people around? They were probably thrilled to have them leave. They were probably chasing them out of the city. I mean, they were probably done. And so this sounds a lot like the Bible story. And that's what we're finding in the archaeological evidence. So that is fascinating. Now, let's move on to a temple um, and storehouses and lots of buildings that were possibly built during the time of King Manasseh. Now, we're going to tell the story first. We're going to go to 2 Kings 19 through 21. I will give a recap of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is the king in uh, 2 Kings chapter 19. um, And you have the threat of the Assyrians coming against coming against Judah. And so Hezekiah goes to the Lord and he's, you know, he's so worried about this. Um, And he's tearing his clothes and, and going before God. And the Assyrian king is literally mocking them, mocking their God. You know, I mean, it's kind of incredible what this king says to the nation. Um, But God delivers Judah and delivers Hezekiah and goes and destroys the armies of the Assyrians. Okay, so there was an Assyrian siege. There was an attempt to take over the city, um, but it failed. And so then after Hezekiah, you get Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Okay, now I'm going to read this to you because this can tell you a little bit about the archaeological finds that they they see today. So Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed, 
He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them, and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So, you know, it goes on to discuss that God is angry with what Manasseh is doing, that Manasseh was just shed so much innocent blood um, and caused Judah to commit so much sin. And so that is the biblical story of Manasseh. Now, what did they find? Well, according to the Times of Israel, I quote, archaeologists have uncovered majestic column heads from a first temple era palace at Jerusalem's Arman Hanatziv promenade, with the remnants of the ancient building going on public display for the first time. On Thursday, now I can't recall when this article was written and I didn't write it down, but I think this this was discovered in the last number of years. The owner of the lavish Jerusalem mansion, which would have enjoyed a monumental view of the old city and the temple, remains a mystery. But archaeologists were able to date the finds back to the era of the Judean kings due to the proto-aeolic features of the soft limestone architecture. So we are in the time period of Manasseh here. The column heads at this site perfectly match the current five-shekel coin design in Israel. This is clearly an Israeli design, and it's an old one. The findings are lavish and rich and from the first temple time period, okay? So experts believe that the residence was built between the reigns of King Hezekiah and Josiah. This is Manasseh. The reason is that the findings are outside the walled city of David, which meant the Israeli builders were confident of building and their location. This was likely after the Assyrian siege, given the time frame after 701 BCE. So there's all of this new building that took place at this time period outside of the walls of the city of David. Previously, I think they probably would not have been confident enough to build outside of that. But the Assyrians were pretty decimated by the Lord, I think. Think the Bible says that it was like 180,000 of them that he destroyed, or I could be, I could be wrong. You guys better go look, go look second Kings 19 and 20 up for me again. But they, he decimated the Assyrian army. And so the Assyrians were no longer a threat. And so they might've felt more confident to build outside of the city. And that there was a lot of wealth at this time, obviously, because there's a lot of wealthy, um, buildings and homes that were found in these areas. Also found near the site in 2020 were figurines and carvings of women's heads um, and icons relating to pagan god worship. 
So and the Bible tells us that Manasseh did this, that Hezekiah was, was righteous and had followed God at the very end there, but that Manasseh um, turned people away from the Lord and brought in pagan God worship. And so the date of these materials goes right back to that time period, to the time of the King Manasseh. And it tells the story of Manasseh. It tells the story of wealth, you know, after the Assyrians are gone, after the siege, they're making new buildings and he's, he is making new buildings. Doesn't didn't Second Kings 21 tell us that, that he was building altars and he was building high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and he's building temples and he's building homes and, and then he is consulting mediums and he is using these places to worship other gods and then he's got the pagan god worship coming in probably with little icons and little things that people prayed to and so it ha- the, this, what they're finding there tells the story of the time period that they have dated these findings from, which is wonderful evidence once again that these Bible stories really did happen. They really did happen in the locations that they said they happened. They really did happen in the time periods they said they happened. And we have archaeological evidence that is showing that. So I hope that those two were interesting for you today. I wanted to do more. I didn't have time to do more. I will hopefully get to do a lot more this next week, a lot more study. Um, If you're interested, be looking forward to the next Bible study in which I am going to read from my book, from the chapter about writing Paul. I feel really called to go back and help you all, those who haven't read my book yet, those who are new to this podcast. I want you to understand why I have the view that I have of scripture. I want to give you the evidence of that view. I want you to have better tools to analyze what you think about these things. But I want you to understand when I say things like a lot of our modern Christianity and Catholicism, it completely comes from paganism or it comes from something called Marcionism. Marcion obsessed over Paul and now we do the same and we find ourselves in lots of troubling territory biblically when we do that. I want you to understand why. Does the Bible really show that? Does the Bible say that? And I want you to see what Paul might have actually been trying to teach um, and hammer out some of the poor doctrines that we have about Paul, because Paul was a brilliant, brilliant, godly, unbelievable testimony to Yahweh, to Yeshua, to our Lord and Savior. But we, I think, have mistreated and misused and abused what he wrote. And so I'm going to be hammering that out here this next Monday or Tuesday, and I hope you join me. If you like these podcasts, would you share them with somebody? Um, and, And if you want more, you might want to upgrade your subscription to a paid subscription. $5 a month will get you all the extra content that I create and will help me continue to be able to do this. So thank you for joining me here today. Uh, Till next time.